Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I know I'm not the first to welcome you to the 2023 Sloan Sports and Analytics Conference, but let me do it again. Uh, welcome to the 2023 Sloan Sports and Analytics Conference. My name is Max Williams. I'm a first year MBA student here at MIT Sloan, and we are super excited today for our poker panel, Raising the Stakes, the Evolution of Poker Strategy. Uh, we have a great panel today. Uh, first of all, we have Maria Ho, professional poker player. We have Nate Silver with us, founder of 538. We have Jennifer Shahadi, another professional poker player and chess champion. And we have Shuan uh, Liu, who is another professional poker player. Uh, our panelists will be moderated by the great Jeff Ma, entrepreneur, Ooh, the host great of Bet Jeff Ma. The Process podcast. And um, we will have 45 minutes with these great guys up here, guys and gals up here. Last 10 minutes will be audience Q&A. If you want to submit a question for the panelists, please do, it, do so via Twitter and use the hashtag RaisingTheStakes. And with that, I'll hand it over to you, Jeff. I like that you called me the great Jeff Ma. I need to <laughs> bring you around as my hype man, Max. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, I've kind of made my career or my name by talking about blackjack. And one of the things I talk about is how blackjack is this perfect Petri dish to learn how to make better data-driven decisions and how to prove that analytics works at scale. Um, Blackjack is largely considered to be solved, and by that I'm, I'm pretty much understating it. It is solved, like you know what to do based on every hand you have, based on the cards that you have and what the dealer has. There's only one correct answer, um, and it's solved because there's no, you're not predicting anything about humans or anything. Poker is different. Uh, chess is different. Um, what your opponent does or what your opponents do should change what you do. But now there is a lot of thought that poker is solved to some degree. So I'm going to throw out to the panel and anyone can jump in. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, with blackjack being a 10 in terms of being solved, how solved is poker? I think it depends on the format. You know, heads up, poker in a two-player finite zero-sum game, that is pretty solved. I mean, I would give that, you know, a, close to a nine maybe. But in terms of other formats, a traditional poker game is played as a nine-handed table. And when you add all of the complexities, the immense amount of variables that come into play with that many players at a table, then I would say that Poker is still far from solved, especially relative to games like blackjack. Yeah, I think like a six or a seven in composite. I mean, that's the right answer though, right? That like, heads up, it's solved, but there are a lot of simplifying assumptions with respect to multiplayer games, and also there are kind of cascading effects, right? If I play incorrectly, if you guys know poker on the bubble of a tournament where you're about to go from making zero dollars to making the minimum of cash, which is often substantial, right? Um, you're supposed to play pretty tight, um, but if I start playing incorrectly, then it really affects everyone else's strategy. So they're not terribly stable solutions. And also what Jeff said, um, you know, if you can exploit somebody, if they're playing wrong, then you don't want to play the optimal strategy, right? It will do okay, it will do fine, right? But you can make much more by, like, by always bluffing in a spot where you're supposed to mix at a game theory standpoint. And so like, I think poker is like importantly not solved in a point where it will remain robust, at least in person, for, for a long time, I think. And also in poker, a lot of the solutions are approximations, because in No Limit Hold'em, there are 
unlimited bet sizes and you need to kind of chunk those for the solution. So there could be a solution that is just an estimate in reality. Um, to take it to chess, there's often a misconception that chess is solved because, well, computers um, from AlphaZero to Stockfish to Deep Blue have been clobbering humans for decades and now are just far and away better players. But that doesn't mean that the game is solved. It's still not even known what the best first move is. Although we can be pretty sure that it's likely to be the queen's gambit. And in fact, it was a beautiful kind of convergence of art and science in that at the time the Queen's Gambit came out, showing that like D4 is the preferred move most of the time from that, uh, you know, from Beth Harmon. Um, it, Alpha Zero, which was the uh, greatest chess player so far that's ever played, even better than the traditional engines, was showing that D4 is also the best move in chess. So we have like solutions like that, but I'd say on the scale from one to 10, um, we're still like also probably at like a seven for chess. In addition to what everybody else was saying, I actually think it's solved to a lesser extent, depending on the types of games that you're playing. Um, obviously, like Maria said, heads-up formats, especially if it's not super deep, um, most of the unknown factors are there um, if you have certain um, assumptions about your one opponent. But once you have more players at the table, once the format changes to, you know, a lot of these like funky games that we're seeing in publicized games, like The Last Person Standing, which they call Squid Game, um, with straddled games, like there's just infinite variables. Um, and when you play deeper, when you're playing 400 or even 1,000 uh, big blind stacks deep, um, it's just really, really difficult to know what all, each, every single opponent is doing. So like, let's go take heads up, right? Which is, we've said, is solved, right? So why the hell do we play heads up anymore? I mean, why would, I mean, would you guys play sort of, it, or would you guys? It has sort of dried up, right? I think yeah. there are not nearly as many. Kind of, there was like the Doug Polk Negranu match, right? Which was kind of like, um, and you thought, well, it's kind of Doug's a very new school GTO-driven player. So did, and you tell thought people it was what GTO school, is, but like, because I don't think they know what GTO. Oh, GTO is. means um, the Nash equilibrium, game theory optimal for poker, um, which is determined by these things called solvers that are actually, they're not AI, they're deterministic. Um, they, you know, they don't solve it perfectly, but they keep iterating until they get an almost perfect solution. Um, and Daniel Negreanu is this famous, like, very chatty, like, old school professional, right? Um, but he said, like, I'm trying to play GTO optimal as well, right? I'm no longer trying to outplay Doug or outpsychologize him. This is during the pandemic, so they're playing online, right? And so, like, yeah, I mean, you know, um, apart from matches where you have like a lot of ego involved. There was one match where there was a big handicap, a guy named Bill Perkins against Landon Tice, and he way beat his handicap. So there'll be ego on the line, but like there's not like very many nosebleed, no limit hold'em heads up matches anymore, I don't think being played. Yeah, and the way that I kind of like to think about GTO play versus exploitative play is that GTO is kind of defensive, right? You're trying to not make mistakes so that your opponent can't exploit you. But when you take the exploitative way, then you are trying to find weaknesses and make adjustments based on the way that your opponents are playing. And obviously, sometimes you hear the saying, you know, the best uh, defense is a good offense. And so I think that when you mix those strategies of having GTO as a baseline and then moving towards finding these exploits and being able to capitalize on them, that's how you reach kind of the elite level of poker. And that's the type of poker that the best poker players in the world are playing. And 
going back to the heads up part, there's not a lot of people, you know, even in online games now, you'll see someone who's a known online heads up beast. Nobody will sit that game. They'll just be sitting at an empty table waiting for somebody to sit them. And so now that, you know, heads up GTO theory is being implemented by the top tier players, there's not really gonna be a random person coming in and playing against them anymore. I think one of the beautiful things about GTO, which has really been kind of uncovered in the recent years as everybody's studying it, is it really shows that poker is so much a game about frequencies. Whereas when I started playing poker, I thought it was about like bet sizing or reading my opponent. And we realize now that it's so much about, you know, bluffing some of the time and figuring out what that correct time, percentage of the time is with your different hands. And I think that's really a pretty important like life lesson from poker that we're starting to learn. A lot of people look at these GTO or, you know, theoretical solutions and find them like soulless. But I think there is something really actually beautiful in the equilibrium and knowing that like you have to bluff some of the time but not all the time. And that is so difficult for humans to do. Usually the way that people are, they either are so patient they can't pull the trigger or they just want to pull the trigger all the time. Definitely. Um, most of the best players in the world these days when they're playing against similar uh, skilled competition always try to have a randomizer at hand, whether that's you know staring at the second clock of their watch or, or just anything else that's going to make them completely um, indifferent to the decision they make. Um, so their opponent will also not uh, know what strategy they, they are implementing. Um, back to the heads up aspect, definitely the best players in the world don't play each other heads up. They know that the edges are so minor, there's you know not really a point in, in um, trying to make money that way. And so the heads up matches that you do see, like Nate mentioned, tend to be these like grudge matches um, that, that have a lot of hype between um, you know, players with a lot of money and players with a lot of ego. So like, first question on GTO, right? It is, it's based on, I mean, is there, is there a prediction of human behavior that GTO incorporates, right? Like, because that's what you're trying to incorporate. Is, it, is there a distribution of the way people act? Like, explain to me how, how we as a society can put a solution to something that is very based on human behavior. Some players will do what they call is node locking, right? So let's say, I'm going to assume my opponent's going to play this way, which may be incorrect, and then develop the best strategy around that, optimize that strategy, right? I think very sophisticated players are like mining data from online games and saying, on this particular type of board, a board is five cards, right? Players bluff too often or don't bluff enough, right? If you play poker a lot, you have a empirical sense for like what the player pool is doing. Um, there are definitely some bluffs that are not very intuitive, right, um, to really think through every decision. I mean, we might have the cliche, like, is poker a sport discussion later, but, like, to really be attentive to every decision when, as Jennifer said, every decision in poker is kind of like a mix, right? Or not everyone, but, like, many decisions are, like, you're supposed to raise here 60% and call here 40%, right? Um, and so, like, get all those right, and like being able to like randomize properly is like a very hard thing to do and like, so you know, it requires a lot of work. How does someone like learn GTO perfectly? How did, I mean, do you guys, which, what, how perfectly do you think any of you guys could play GTO? 
Uh-oh. I mean, <laughs> yeah, not, not very, because at the end of the day, right, I think, well, first of all, when I first started in poker, this was pre-solver era. So there was, my baseline for poker was literally sitting down at a card room, making tons of mistakes, and then learning and fixing those errors on the back end. But now in the solver era, a lot of poker players have to adapt to the fact that poker strategy has evolved so quickly. So of course, you know, people are studying more and people are, you know, trying to figure out how to play optimally. But when we're sitting down at a poker table, you can't account for the fact that the opponents that are sitting across from you are obviously deviating from the strategy. They might not even have any knowledge of what GTO is. And so you really have to be able to adapt and adjust on the fly to those things. And those are how the best players are made, I think, is being able to understand GTO on a fundamental level. But once you're in game, you have to be willing to throw a little bit out, throw a little bit of that out the window and be able to deviate well enough so that you're maximizing your EV, which comes from exploiting human behavior. And where do you, where are like the biggest exploitations of human behavior in terms of like, if you were to give people advice right now, if they were to play heads up, like what should, what should they, how should they think about the ways to exploit human behavior? That people should bluff more or what are the, what are the general three rules you'd give someone? Are there any rules? I think the most important thing is still game selection. Um, obviously, if you're playing live against an opponent, you can see from across the table. You can sort of gauge and, and do some data collecting as to like what frame of mind your opponent's in, um, how emotional they are, um, you know, how GTO-driven you think that they are, and, and build your strategy based on that. Obviously, if you're sitting um, at a table online against an unknown player, um, then you're just going to have to assume that they're probably going to be a more skilled player if they're willing to sit, you know, at an open table against you and, and build your strategy that way. So it really kind of depends on the game that you're in. If I had to give a few rules, I would first say that most people in this audience, if they play poker casually, I would guess they're not playing heads up. They're probably playing ball tie way, like with eight players at either a home game or perhaps a tournament online or with friends. And um, the vast majority of the time, uh, people play too many hands pre-flop. So that would be like a general exploit. If people are playing too many hands pre-flop, then you know, when you play your hands, you're gonna usually have like a lot stronger range than them. So you can win some big pots that way. Um, also, I guess another generalization would be that uh, people tend to what we call inelastic to your bet sizing. So sometimes if they have a hand, you really have a good sense that your opponent has like an ace. So they have a pair on like a board that also has an ace. And you know that they want to call because they have a pair of aces. But your hand's even stronger, right? So you can just bet a lot. It sounds, it, that, that goes back to like what Maria was talking. It's very, very exploitable. If you know that I'm thinking that, then when I bet a lot, you're supposed to fold. But in reality, people are just so drawn to their pair of aces, they call. So that, that would be like an example of an exploit, like knowing that people are inelastic when they have a good pair. And people are too passive on average, right? The stereotypical mediocre poker player is too loose, they play too many hands, and they're too passive. Um, they don't go aggressively enough for value with their good hands. They also don't bluff enough on, in most situations. There are some exceptions, like on boards that have like lots of flush and straight draws. Um, but yeah, I mean, you wanna be truly tight and aggressive and use the whole range of bet sizings. And you want to fold to people 
in situations where at GTO you'd be neutral. I'm really bad at this part, right? But you know, um, you want to fold empirically more than you would at GTO because most opponents don't bluff often enough. Got it. So okay, so if you go back to this idea of like game theory, which is kind of what GTO is obviously based on, um, when we think about two people playing GTO perfectly in a heads-up situation, I'm assuming that like it'll all come down to who gets what cards is the determiner of who wins, essentially. Like if someone gets better cards, they're probably going to win versus the other person. Game theory and something like when analytics has become in the mainstream, you know, markets tend towards efficiency. We all know that, right? And so we're seeing this a little bit in sports, right? In the Super Bowl, right, we had Sirianni, the coach of the Eagles, um, playing pretty optimally. And on um, the podcast that I do, you know, I pose the question, is, is someone becoming so optimal, uh, you know, kind of a bad thing at some point? Because if from a game theory perspective, will another team try to exploit that because they know how optimal he's playing. So is there an analogy here from a poker standpoint if someone's too GTO oriented and then like really like what, what can we learn broadly from sports and poker in terms of like that, that decision making or how to leverage game theory from an analytic standpoint to kind of stay ahead? I don't know if that was a, that was a poorly phrased question, but I'll see if you guys can make the best of it. I would argue that it, once again, goes back to game selection. Um, if you're playing against the best players in the world, by definition, playing GTO is gonna, might literally be your best and most optimal strategy. Um, if you're playing against opponents with a lot of uh, you know, live leaks and tells and things like that, um, your best strategy, as Maria mentioned earlier, is probably gonna be to play a very exploitative style. Um, so you're going to have to, first and foremost, be observant, collect that data, and, and see which style will be best. So coaches should look and see whether the coaches they're playing against are smart or not, essentially, <laughs> and base their strategy. I mean, it's, it's what you were saying, right? Like against Sirianni, if you're like a new coach, you probably have a different strategy than you would against someone else, which makes complete sense, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, by definition, game theory optimal means that you can't be exploited, so you can't lose, but you can just win less than you want to you win. Right? So imagine you're playing a poker game, and you have your ranges, your GTO ranges, but a guy sits down, and he's been partying all night, and he's just literally putting thousands of dollars in with every hand, just looking at his cards for like two seconds, right? Not even looking at both his cards. Well, if you play those same ranges, then you're just leaving tons and tons of money on the table, right? So that's the idea. And then actually, if you know that your opponent's literally just going all in with any two cards, actually game theory optimal changes, right? So it would actually shift. Now you would have to have a new optimal. So when you say optimal, that means like, doesn't mean that it's like always gonna be exactly the same. It just means against a perfect opponent that's right. what your ranges are. So game theory optimal almost doesn't seem like a strategy as much as it is a theory that like you have to kind of like understand what the theory is in all these hands or, or is it a strategy? I mean, it's a strategy that makes a lot of assumptions about your opponent's assumptions and their opening ranges and things like that. So if you have more information than your standard GTO with your um, solved inputs allow, then you should definitely adjust based on that new information. Maria, what were you saying? You, some... I mean, to echo what Jennifer was saying earlier, I mean, 
at the end of the day, we have to take into account all of these other variables and all of the other things that come into the fact that we're playing against a human, right? So as Jen mentioned with that example, right, there's gonna be players that end up sitting down at the table and you just know that they're either not taking it seriously or they're playing too loose or you know other things that we've mentioned that are obvious leaks in the game. And poker and playing the best poker possible is all about maximizing your expectation, right? So you have to be able to take those situations and then maximize your EV according to how your opponent is playing and not just always falling back on this GTO theoretical, theoretical but mathematically correct pay, play. Also, because you are indifferent in a lot of spots, like literally you're supposed to raise some of the time and call some of the time, they have the exact same value in a game theory solution. What that means is if you have any reason to deviate, then you, you should, right, to break the tie. So for that reason, like actually things like um, physical reads and intuition, um, or poker players call it game flow, kind of how the past couple of hours have gone and what you think the opponent's state of mind might be. Um, so you actually kind of want to pay more attention to those <laughs> in some ways, right? If you can get like 55% of the 50-50 decisions right, like that would make you one of the biggest winners in the world in poker. The edges are, are pretty small. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there, there are poker players now who like watch tape on one another, right? Um, there's more emphasis now on things like Nutrition, if you're well-fed and well-rested and healthy, you tend to give away less um, with your tells and maybe be more alert to someone else's tells. And so it's, you know, we really haven't seen a game at this level of like actual people attempting to implement <laughs> GTO. At the same time, like, at the same time, the best situation poker is to have good game selection and then find somebody who's making mistakes. So let's go to tells, right? Because tells are obviously super interesting way to win. How, how does someone spot it? How do you guys, give me some stories about how you guys have spotted tells. And give me, and also I'd love to hear about times that you've realized that you are doing a tell and you've corrected that. Well, I think tells in the traditional sense, you know, everybody talks about, oh, show me your poker face or, you know, what's your, or how are you reading your opponents in a live setting? Well, it's not by looking at them at this point. You know, for me, it's more about pattern recognition and betting tells, you know, between, you know, the, the way that they're sizing their bets and things like that. But of course, you know, when you are against a less skilled or more inexperienced opponent, there's going to naturally become these physical factors that come out when they are bluffing or when they have a strong hand. And it's kind of up to you to make sure you're interpreting it correctly because there's also such a thing as reverse tells, right? Somebody giving you a, a tell that they want you to read on one level, but really it means the opposite. Um, and that's why you see a lot of even the most skilled poker players, you'll watch them on TV and they're wearing a hoodie, they're wearing sunglasses because there's just so much that you're afraid of giving away that you want to obviously protect your edge as much as possible, that even the best poker players that might have the experience to keep their emotions under control and to be able to temper all of those physical elements, they still feel like they wanna be as protected as they possibly can. I don't wear sunglasses, so I feel like sometimes I've been a human tell box, but I, um, I definitely try to do everything very methodically with where I place my hands after I bet, with the speed at which I am putting out my chips. Um, 
you know, there's always a lot of things that people can pick up on when there's gonna be some nervous ticks that you might have with the way that you're shuffling while you're waiting for your opponent to make their decision. Um, I actually have one really funny story of how I picked up a tell, essentially, was in the World Series of Poker main event, uh, my second year playing it, I was really deep. There was only, you know, 50 players left out of 6,500. Um, and I got into a huge pre-flop pot with a very aggressive opponent. <laughs> and he happened to be sitting right next to me. And the longer that I took the time to make my decision, it was all in for my tournament life, the more uncomfortable I saw him getting, but I was also trying not to read too much into that because of the reverse tell and him being an experienced player. Uh, but then I looked down at his feet and maybe this is a tip to just never wear sandals, but oh. he had open-toed shoes and I could see his toes just kind of like crinkle up. You know, there's <laughs> a lot of tension in his feet and I just kept taking my time. You know, no, nobody had called the clock on me. I was taking my sweet time and I was just pondering like, does this mean that he is nervous? Does this mean that he's trying to bluff me off my hand? And I just felt like there was so much tension built up over that period of time I was taking to think that I ended up calling him and I, I was right. But I try not to wear open-toed shoes now. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> self-conscious here. I'm curling my toes. Yeah, I, I started playing poker online, and when I played live, I was such a tellbox. And one of the things I noticed was that I would, uh, bluffing, I would tend to like put out big chips, like a small number of big chips. So say that there's like 5,000 chips and I was bluffing, I would put like two 5K chips in the pot. Whereas when I had a really good hand, I would put like a very precise amount of chips in the pot, like 96.50 or something like that. Like really try to figure out exactly how much value I could squeeze out of them. So as Maria points out with reverse tells, then I started realizing I was doing that, other people was doing that, I could play with that. And, and that's actually like an interesting corollary to like real life that you see like these very specific pricings, right? Like why people charge $96.50 for something instead of like 100, because it seems more sincere. Or in poker, it seems more like a value bet. Interesting. I mean, you have to correlate it to behavior at the end of the day, right? Because there are some people that are like wired to be more nervous when they have aces, they get really nervous. Aces is like best hand in poker, right? So people like, are more nervous than a bluff, right? It depends on your uh, psychology. Um, I mean, I played in 2021 um, heads up in the 10K Limit Hold'em Championship of the World Series um, against a guy named, nicknamed Angry John, John Manette. He is a very high stakes, live reading player who was very, very detail oriented. Um, and we played like a long heads up match, right? It's limit poker so you won't get eliminated on one hand, right? And like, I knew by the end um, they was picking up reads based on like just the fact that he was like getting every marginal decision right, you know. And I actually had like a um, a friend who like texted me um, during the match and said, "I think here's what he's picking up on, right?" But I didn't want to check Twitter and DMs. I wanted to focus on the match, and so that would have been might have saved me the match in the end. But it's because he had like four hours worth of data, and it was a bit of a reverse tell, right? The default player I was doing that would read as strong from a default player, but to me it actually was a reverse tail unintentionally, just because like, I'm wired differently, right? And so like, yeah, you have to correlate it to behavior. But then sometimes you like, you do develop some intuition for it. Um, I never had it before, but when I started playing a lot more live poker in the last couple of years, you sometimes just know, you sometimes just know people just like, with a micro expression, um, 
they don't really even try to conceal sometimes. It's just, it's just weird sometimes. So if we go to move on to the sort of cheating stuff that's happening or has happened, like I, we can't not talk about that. Um, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on how much cheating do you think exists in poker specifically and you know, the very much publicized debate about whether there was cheating in that, the hand that's been you know, put all around Twitter. Like, do you guys have any takes on that from a standpoint of like, whether there was cheating involved there? I think generally cheating is going to be a little more prevalent online than live because it's easier, right? Because now there's RTA, there's real-time assistance, and there's people that are able to go into a database while they're playing a hand and look up essentially the correct solution and then play as if they were essentially a robot. It's, and there's also just actual bots that play online, and those bots are not necessarily going to be maximizing EV, but you know, with rake back deals or with other things, you know, they're printing a small hourly essentially and someone just has a bot farm and then they'll just be put into these smaller stakes games online. So live cheating happens a little more infrequently because it's not as easy, of course, to access the correct solution in a live situation, but also because it's hard to make it not obvious, right? There's gonna be Collusion is probably one of the, the easiest examples of how cheating occurs in live poker is chip dumping to another player is turning poker into a partner game of sorts or where you have multiple players at the same table that are sharing a bankroll perhaps or playing with each other in order to help elevate one person's position and get them further along in the tournament. So those things happen as far as specifically the, the infamous Robbie hand, I mean, I personally don't think she cheated. There was this investigation that the casino did from a third party and they didn't find evidence of cheating. To me, I feel like it's very dangerous to accuse someone of cheating if you can't prove it and then if people are willing to take the matter into their own hands and hire a third party to investigate it, and the findings show that there was no cheating involved, I think that it's, it's kind of dangerous ground to, to stand on to keep that accusation out there, because obviously that can very much ruin this person's reputation for the rest of their life as a poker player. But, I, but it is important to make sure that we're calling out when we think cheating occurs or how it could occur, because obviously that poses a real threat to the game itself. So I actually played in with Robbie and uh, her partner Rip uh, just the session before this whole incident happened um, on Hustler. And I would say that their actions and behavior was kind of in alignment with um, when I played against them. Um, you know, they, they tended to call off light and randomly in certain spots and she's, you know, a very brave, courageous player, but she's also, you know, can be emotional and go with her gut instinct in spots. And so I think they're just, you know, it seemed like it wasn't a very logical play, but that's, you know, kind of what she goes with. Um, I think more cheating probably happens in private games where there's a lot of money on the line. Um, as we know, you know, anytime there is vast amounts of money because, um, you know, people just find unsavory ways of, of gathering that. So in addition to the online aspect, like Maria saved, Set was mentioning, as long as you're not playing in you know, super high stakes private games or online, you should be okay at the casinos. 
So where do we go in poker now if it's becoming more efficient and like the, you know, the GTO thing? Like what, what's your vision for the next you know, 10 years in poker in terms of, you know, we've gone through these, the, you know, obviously the online and then the World Series and like there's been a huge boom. Um, but where, where does it go now? Like is GTO ultimately, is that gonna be good for poker or is that gonna be bad? If heads up isn't something that pros wanna play anymore, like is analytics gonna be the death of poker? I don't think so because it seems like poker is kind of riding a boom. It might not be quite as steep as like the chess boom, but it really is getting more popular. And you see that while yes, there are GTO solvers that you know everybody who play a lot, everybody who plays like seriously or professionally studies. There's also a lot of innovation in poker formats. There's just in the last few years, there's been the widespread adoption of Big Blind Annie, which has changed things a little bit. That's a little like technical. There's also something called Mystery Bounties, which has gotten popular in the last couple of years, which people love, which means if like I knock Chuan out, yay, I get like a random prize. So it kind of adds this like fun suspense to poker. And even though it's like, of course, more gambly, it also, it's funny how there's like this oscillation, something is more gambly, but then it also ends up having a lot of math to it because you know you see with these mystery bounties, people start tracking which ones have been taken and then they uh, you know change their decisions based on like how big the bounties are that are left. So I think there's a lot of potential innovations. And one thing I'd love to see is that in chess, um, the AI Alpha Zero um, not only became the best chess player in the world, but also spent some time trying to figure out if there were some ways to make chess more exciting. So like there was a several month period where it just kept playing itself with like minor tweaks to the game of chess. Like chess where like the pawns could move um, two squares all game, chess where you can't castle at all, chess where a stalemate is a win, and it tried to like, you know, pump out superior games. Right. Um, and I, I think like trying something like that with poker would be Wild really cards. interesting. That's what we got to go to. Wild yeah, because poker, it is booming. There was a tournament at the win um, in December, which was a $15 million guarantee, right? Which was the largest ever guarantee. And they doubled the guarantee. They got $30 million roughly worth of entries. Um, so poker is doing really well. And then in addition to like different formats, um, mixed games, so games that are not Texas Hold'em are having a little bit of a revival. Um, both traditional mixed games like Stud and Omaha and rotations where you might have dealer's choice and have any of like 20 games that you draw from. Um, so that's healthy for the community, I think, too, because those definitely aren't, they might be solved, but not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I don't think that having analytics in the game of poker and being able to find, you know, what now people feel like is an optimal solution to the game hurts the game because I think it gives people this goal of being able to be better and it creates this atmosphere where people want to play more and they want to get better as a whole. But also the beauty of poker is that on any given day, you as maybe a suboptimal poker player can beat the best poker player in the world. And there's very few sports or competitive environments where you can say that. And that's what keeps people coming back, right? Is this juxtaposition of being able to get incredibly good at a game that's incredibly complex while still on occasion maybe being like, oh, this is just my favorite hand. I'm always lucky with Jack-10 suited, so I'm just gonna gamble in this moment because that's what I wanna do. And then you get that exciting, fun element out of poker and you could still win. 
I mean, I think that that's, to me, that's like the interesting question, right, around analytics is like, it's boring, right? Doing things analytically driven is boring. Like, right, like people always ask me, like, what do you miss most about Blackjack? And I'm like, it's not sitting at the table grinding for four hours and playing perfect, perfectly, right? Because playing analytically is, is, is often very boring. So I do wonder a little bit about as poker evolves and we have this like perfect analytical solution. Like you guys said it, like it's interesting. Like why do you not play like GTO perfectly? Like is it because it's too hard or because it doesn't always call for it or is it, what, what's the reason? All of the above of those, yeah, for sure. Is there anyone in the world that plays it perfectly? No, I don't think it's possible. I mean, maybe like with very, very short stack. And then it's not, like, not even close to solve then, right? If it's, if it's impossible to play this thing perfectly, then it's not close. Well, also, cash games, where you're very, when you have a very big stack relative to the size of the bet, um, those solutions are less precise. The deeper the stacks are, the more compute you need to solve it. And also, like, people will like literally add wrinkles to the game um, to make it more complex, right? In live, big live cash games, right, they'll have a game where 7-2 offsuit is the worst hand in poker. So if you win a pot with 7-2 offsuit, you collect a big bounty from the other players. Now that has a big effect. If I'm acting like I have a very good hand, could be aces, could be I have three of a kind, right? Or I could have 7 deuce offsuit because I have a big incentive now to play that way so it changes everything else. And so like poker players are pretty efficient about finding workarounds to make the game more interesting, including in a cash game, just kind of everyone like has a social contract to play a little looser than you should. And if you're too much of a knit, meaning really tight and boring, then you won't get invited back to the game. <laughs> so let's go into um, sort of this idea of like the lessons that poker, you think you can take from poker into the life or the real world or anything like that. Can you guys maybe each give me a, like a, the greatest sort of takeaway that you have from poker that's influenced your life or that you think could influence your life from a standpoint of decision making? Well, for me, I feel like now when I measure success in something in real life, it's not by the outcome, it's by the quality of the decision that I made with the information that I had at the time, which is definitely something that poker taught me, is just to be able to remove this idea of what we call being results-oriented, right? And just because the outcome was favorable doesn't mean that my decision-making process was good. And just because the outcome was unfavorable doesn't mean that my decision-making process was bad. And also just being able to remove that emotional aspect of being attached to a certain outcome. Because poker has shown me that I could play the hand perfectly and it can still not work out according to plan because of the fact that aces are gonna lose to kings, you know, 20% of the time. And so now in real life, I've been able to temper my emotions a little bit when something doesn't go my way because I understand that there's always in life gonna be variables that are out of my control, uh, but that doesn't mean that the decision I made was incorrect. I would say being aggressive, and I think this is a lot of, uh, this is a lesson that for a lot of women poker players and for women in general, like, is so important. Um, when you play good poker, some of the time, you're gonna make a bluff. 
and you're going to be red-faced and embarrassed because somebody is going to call you and, you know, you're going to have to sh shift all your chips over to them. And if that's never happening to you, it doesn't mean that you're a great bluffer, that you're playing great. It means that you're not bluffing enough and you're not being aggressive enough. And this is such a great life corollary that if you're not asking for more, if you're not getting told no to your ask or not getting told that, you know, you're asking for too large of a raise or for too much money, if that's not happening to you on a regular basis, then maybe you need to look and ask, um, am, I, am I bluffing enough? Am I being enough, aggressive enough? And that's why bringing more women into poker is so important to me and why it's so cool that we have a female-dominated panel about poker today. Great. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Um, I mean, Jeff, what you were saying about you thinking that blackjack is like a petri dish for life, I actually think poker is actually probably more so because there's so many unknown variables, um, you know, between the different actors and each having sort of their own strategy and their own incentives. Um, and you kind of have to figure out what level everybody's operating on. And, and sometimes, you know, depending on the game format, you're trying to all get ahead at the same time, you know, if you're near the bubble and, you know, you have to kind of play cooperatively to some extent. Um, but sometimes, really, you're, you're trying to beat everybody else if, if it's a, a freeze-out and you're trying to take everybody else's chips. Um, so it's all about just, you know, adapting and, and uh, going with the flow and, and, and deciding which strategy is the best given the, the game that you're in. Nate, you got one? Yeah, I think kind of, I'm working on this book about poker and gambling, but also related things like investing and, and rationality. Um, and kind of We've been hearing like, this for a couple of years, by the way. Yeah, well, look, I'm actually writing, writing now. There's 10,000 words written, yeah. which is a lot better than zero. Uh, <laughs> but like, just kind of like how irrational people are and how like actually unusual the skill set that maybe this room has, right? One friend calls it like EV maximizing, expected value maximizing, right? But you're, where you're using analytics and reviewing your thought process carefully and trying to optimize in some dimension and trying to see where the market is wrong. Like that's not normal. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's like not how most people are. And it's definitely not how most people are in the realm that I cover for part of my life, which is politics, right? Like people in like, on like politics Twitter are like the exact opposite of poker players, right? Irrational is kind of like a quick and dirty label to use on it, right? But they're not really even like pursuing like truth or kind of consistency, right? They're just, I don't know. Um, and they don't really have like consequences for like for making dumb decisions, right? I mean, in poker, it's very, very noisy. Um, the long run, I mean, you can have, be a great player and have a losing year or a couple of years, right? But like, but you reach it a lot longer, shorter than in, in politics where there's like no actual like accountability for anything and like, and where like, you know, you're not really incentivized to be correct about things. And so, I don't know, it just kind of makes me, I've realized that like poker is like, like my community and I kind of don't really give a fuck if like other people don't get it. So I, I think the, the idea of like a couple things, like rationality is super interesting, right? Because obviously we've, we started like learning economics and believing people were rational and made rational decisions. And then we realized that that wasn't true and that launched everything around behavioral economics and whatnot. In poker and in gambling generally, I think there's a super interesting theme, which is that once you sit down at a table and you know, you're gambling at some level, it's pretty hard for people to be perfectly rational. And, it's, and, and that's why there's still opportunities. Like it sounds like, Shwan, one of your big lessons is like read the room and understand the people and understand like, because there are always gonna be people 
that make irrational decisions. I mean, I think there's a lot of professional bettors in this room, and I don't think there's one single one that would tell you they haven't made a bad decision once knowing it was a bad decision because they were emotional about something. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about, we have about five more minutes before we go to audience questions, but we talked a little bit about, um, Jennifer, you mentioned sort of the diversity of this panel, right? And I think it's super interesting. I know back in the day when we played blackjack, it was very valuable for us to be Asians because the, no, the, the, the casinos would look at us and say, oh, those guys are high rollers, like they're Asian, they like to gamble, that's what it is. Are there advantages, inherent advantages in poker and, and the different sort of you know, biases that are out there based on you know, different um, you know, representation or whatnot? And ultimately, like, is there challenges around sort of like gender um, in poker that are inherent or is, are there advantages, I guess I would ask as a question. I think the most obvious and glaring kind of two uh, parts of it is going to be based on gender and age, right? So I feel like as a woman, the way that people perceive me when I sit down at a poker table is going to be different than how they perceive maybe if Nate sits down at the table and you're bringing a lot of things that not just from the game but from society and coming in and thinking about you know, the way that maybe society has cautioned women from taking big risks or playing very aggressively, and you're translating that into stereotyping a way that a woman would maybe approach the game of poker as opposed to a man, or, you know, same goes for somebody who's older versus somebody who's younger and is, you know, less risk-averse. Um, but for me, I think it's a double-edged sword because in poker, there are no inherent disadvantage to the game and how well it can be played as a woman. Um, and I don't mind that sometimes my skill might be called into question because of somebody's stereotypes. Um, and in fact, I feel like a lot of my success in poker has been derived from the fact that I'm taking these people's perceptions and these people's you know, misperceptions, obviously, about me and the way that I'm playing and exploiting it to my benefit. So I'm not in a rush to necessarily prove these people wrong that, oh no, hey, wait, I, I can be just as skilled as the person or the man sitting next to me. I actually feel like that's an edge that I'm able to gain if I'm able to exploit it properly. Have you always had that confidence from the beginning? Uh, I mean, maybe in the beginning there was a part of me that felt like I always had to, and this actually ties back in with the Robbie cheating situation where people were saying her explanations after the hand didn't make sense. There was a time when I felt like I had to defend my plays almost because I was always under the impression that people's assumption was that I was bad at the game. And so if I made a play or deviated from optimal strategy, I felt like I had to have a reason for it. Otherwise, their label of, oh, she's probably just a bad player would stick. Um, but that quickly went away when I realized that I was able to maximize my ability to make money in the game because these people had that perception of me. And I felt like I found you know, that to be a better win for me and more important to me than necessarily proving to people that I was good. I think for me, um, the biggest disadvantage that women have in poker is that we have less wealth and that we make less money. 
and that is just the biggest thing you can have in poker. People ask me, is it patience, concentration, um, you know, aggression, quantitative skills, math? No, none of that. The best thing you can have to be a good poker player is money, period. And, you know, of course, there's, there's some pretty obvious corollaries here with, like, you know, startups, yeah, as we were once talking about, or for building businesses. And I think that's why, like, investing in uh, female poker players is, like, a really beautiful metaphor. Um, poker power, it's, like, trying to get a million women into poker. And I think that just the idea that women, like, people of color are not investing in in equally, and if they don't have the same capital, the chances of them succeeding are obviously far less. Because you mentioned game selection earlier. If you have less money, then there's fewer games that you're able to play. And some of the best games to play in are not cheap. And so that, that to me is uh, really important, and I think it's something that I've seen in the development of poker that people are paying more attention to this. You know, there was a time where when somebody got very few chips in a poker tournament, um, they would say, like, what do you do wrong? Like, how do you only have, like, five big blinds or, like, 1,000 chips? Now people realize that that's just normal. You know, like, sometimes you played well and you have no chips, right? And, of course, that's true in life. Sometimes people um, did everything right and don't have any chips, and that doesn't mean that they don't deserve another chance. Yeah, and a lot of tournament strategy and GTO strategy um, kind of depends on how much money you have and how much variance you can handle. Um, so, you know, if a freaking sweep for, for a certain play is, you know, optimally X amount, but you really don't have, you know, the bankroll to sustain that variance, you might, you know, take a more passive or even an ultra-aggressive line so that you shut down decisions on future streets for your opponents. Um, so I, I definitely agree that's a huge factor. Uh, back to what Maria was saying, I, you know, I think it's actually a huge advantage when you're able to use um, what your opponents think of you and your weaknesses against them. Um, so, you know, when I was younger and way less confident, I, of course, it affected me and it, you know, made me play worse when I thought my opponents thought I was a worse player. But these days, it actually kind of makes me happy because I, I have the tools to take advantage of that. My advantage as a white guy is I can blend in. Um, <laughs> because, like, I played at last year's World Series against a, a player named Ebony Kenny, who's uh, a black woman and like very, very good player, but also very like conversational and smart and like will go around to the table and like ask everyone their name and what they do, right? Um, and she's very smart about it, right? She's trying to like get in people's heads a little bit. And she's asking, also asking things she already knows, right? She already looked all of them up. You know <laughs> who your opponents are on day two of the World Series, right? So it's purely head games and controlling the environment, but I'm like, I'm so bad or so happy in a day when like I'm tired that I don't have to do all that extra work, right? It's admirable that she does it and still plays really well too, but like, um, but I have the option to just be kind of like, just say nothing and be the average like 45 year old white guy with a baseball cap and a beard. Like I'm like literally the average poker demographic, I think. <laughs> That's amazing that you mentioned Ebony because, you know, a lot of women don't play in what we call high rollers, which are like really, really big buy-in events. And um, Ebony recently played in the, one of the highest buy-in tournaments in the world and ended up winning like millions of dollars. Um, she went from like having like uh, 500,000 winnings to like over 3 million in just like a weekend because she got invested in. And so it's a really beautiful example. Nate, are you the average or the median, you think? Sorry, I had to take uh, I guess, so poker is actually okay on racial and ethnic diversity, and it hasn't been okay, well, ish. 
relative to like Silicon Valley, or I mean, like, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. For the book, I'm like writing about like lots of communities are very male and like very white, and poker is like very male and like pretty white and Asian, but like compared to some things, I don't know. I mean, sports analytics, I don't know. Um, uh, that was just a nerd joke, and you yeah. took it a little far. So, from, from an analytics, okay, some questions from the audience. From an analytics perspective, what is your biggest piece of advice for an amateur player to help take their game to the next level? Well, I think that probably the most basic start to, you know, if you're not quite wanting to explore, you know, solvers quite yet, something like a pre-flop hand chart where it basically shows you what hands you open from every single position. And I would say that playing a very strong, fundamentally strong pre-flop game is 80% of the game, actually, because it helps you um, make less mistakes later on in the hand, in, in the post-flop portion of the hand, because if you're not involved in marginal hands from positions that you're not supposed to be opening from, then obviously it makes your decision less complicated after. Uh, so I would say study that. Those charts are infallible. You, all you have to do is memorize. Yes, maybe it takes a little bit of that fun part away from the game, but once you know it, uh, it's going to improve your game dramatically if you're somebody that's never studied those charts before. That's good. How can you quantify the time it takes to bet when it's someone's turn? Is that a metric that's worth utilizing, and would it make any differences in the development of potential poker algorithms? Does anyone want to take that? Yeah, that's something that people take a lot of consideration to it. We call it timing tells. So the amount of time that somebody takes before they make a bet is often indicative of the hand strength. And yet people have actually tried to incorporate that onto online as well and to create programs that incorporate for that. How do you guys attempt to remove emotion from your poker strategy? I think it's good to kind of like work with your emotions and just, you know, because I don't think you can always like just completely shut them out. But if you, if you get emotional about making the right decision, then you can really work with your emotions in a way that is also strategic. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the best ways, right, in anything is to be very process oriented and not results based because like ultimately that will help you focus on the decision and not the outcome and be less emotional. Yeah, it's not that you're not feeling emotions, but that you're not Acting, acting on them, them yeah. right? Um, I read a book called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf recently, which was by a former, um, former like Wall Street derivatives trader who became a neuroscientist. And he kind of critiques like actually like behavioral economics. He's like, you know, we know people make deviations from like rationality, but it's because we have like millions of years of evolution to train us and give us actually knowledge. And so our bodies are like telling us a lot of things, right? Um, it's not bad to have like a physical reaction to something. Poker is weird because if people detect that reaction, you're giving away information. But like, it's not bad to have an emotional response. You just have to kind of think your way through, am I scared or do I have like some intuition about like whether someone is strong or weak? Uh, the current poker meta is checking to the preflop aggressor. What are ways to exploit this and when should you donk bet? So I would argue that the meta has shifted quite a bit, that there's um, as much leading or donking play as there ever has been in, in poker play history, if you guys would agree. 
um, just because a lot of you know game theory uh, optimal strategy has suggested that based on your opponent's ranges, pre-flops, some boards are just gonna be more favorable to the out of position player. Um, and so it's, it's a strategy that's being more implemented at a lot of, a lot of different levels. Okay, um, can you talk about some of your bad beats and how analytics either did or did not factor into decisions you made? Well, usually I would have to like pay somebody to tell them a bad beat story and somebody's <laughs> asking for it. All right, um, no, I mean, no, I, I mean, the worst possible situation in terms of a bad beat is when you are one card away, which is the river is yet to come and somebody hits a one outer, right? That's gonna be the worst beat that you can potentially take in, in the game of poker. And that often is going to only happen, you know, less than 2% of the time. And so for a poker player, when you're playing in a big tournament, and you're very deep in the tournament, now we're talking about real dollars being assigned to the value of your chips now. You know, that's the, the ICM that we use, the independent chip model, where now your chips that at the start only has the tournament value of the chips, which is the price you paid to enter the tournament, now we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity on the one river card that's yet to come. And so basically, that, all that to say, in not a specific situation, but I've had somebody hit a one-outer on me in a tournament where there were three players left out of a field of thousands. And so I remember the exact hand. I won't bore you guys with all the details, but granted, that's the worst situation that could happen, <laughs> When you make a deep run in a multi-day tournament, how do you fight the exhaustion and make sure you play your A game the entire time? I think let go of the idea that you can play your A game all the time. Sometimes you have to settle for your B game and, that, and, and elevate that. So there's this idea in training that you want to elevate your B and your C game because obviously once in a while when you're playing a multi-day tournament, you don't get any sleep and you know it's asking a lot to be A all the time. Okay, last question. Do you expect the massive investment in expanded legal sports betting to enhance or impact poker world at all? I hope so. I mean, poker is now legal in various states, including my own PA, where I can play in Poker Stars now. And also, it's uh, in New Jersey and uh, Michigan now, and some, some places in Nevada as well. So I do think it's going to spread. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of poker rooms are put right next to sportsbooks and casinos. There's a lot of crossover traffic. It's the least profitable activity. I mean, um, Poker, you know, slot machines by far the best than table games, and like poker and sports is almost more of an amenity, but they're, they are correlated, and so it can't be bad for poker, I don't think. Yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting because I think it, it is creating more acceptance of betting broadly as a society, and then, I mean, I think the interesting game of skill, not game of skill thing that we need to talk about at some point, but that's probably a whole panel unto itself. So <laughs> thank you guys. I thank the panelists and thank you guys all for coming.